Well, we're continuing and getting very close to concluding in Genesis. We'll be covering today the end of chapter 49 and the beginning of chapter 50. So go ahead and turn there, and I'll read it, then we'll pray. We're looking at Jacob dies in faith. Jacob dies in faith. It's taken from Hebrews 11. It says these all died in faith after it concludes giving the testimony of some of their lives. And so we see it here. Jacob dies in faith. We heard last week about all the blessings that he gave to his sons. And it's interesting, it does call them blessings, even though some of them certainly don't sound particularly blessed. But he concludes, the author concludes in verse 28 of chapter 49, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing them each with the blessing suitable to him. Verse 29, Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. <clears throat> when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. 
Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we bless your holy name and thank you for this word that you've given to us. We thank you that you are speaking through it even now and that you've given us examples, examples of men as warnings and examples of men as encouragement to imitate. And we pray that you would open our hearts this morning to receive the word that you have for us. We thank you that you've given your spirit to dwell within. You said, Lord Jesus, that when he has come, he will teach us all things and bring all things to our remembrance whatsoever you've said. So we're remembering that promise. We pray that you'd do it now, that you'd speak to us through your word and give seed to the sower, bread to the eater as it falls on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so it's a very interesting passage. There's a lot said here that at first glance seems to be, what's the right word? Not boring, but a bit of something that you would normally read and just check off and say, okay, I'm just trying to finish out the book. I'm trying to conclude, get to the ending. But there's a lot of ink spent on this particular narrative. And the first thing to notice in verse 29 is that it says that he commanded them. He commanded his sons. It mentions this three times. In verse 29, it says, he commanded them. And then in verse 33, it says, when he finished commanding his sons. And then in chapter 50, verse 12, it says that his sons did for him as he had commanded. Now, that's notable because this is the first time that Jacob has ever commanded anything. It's the first time that we see that word, that specific word used of Jacob in the book of Genesis. And if you remember some of the messages that we've covered before, Jacob was a bit of a passive man. He was a neglectful man in his earlier days in terms of being a father, being a husband, shepherding his household, taking charge. So it's interesting that it uses this word now, here at the end of his life, that he finally commands his family. We don't like that word. That makes us generally feel uncomfortable because a lot of times we receive evil commands, whether it be from governmental authorities, which seem to be proliferating quite rapidly in these days, or whether it be from your employer or whether it be from family, whatever. There's, a, there's an epidemic of exercising ungodly authority and abusing authority in a way that makes us recoil at the notion of being commanded. But being commanded by God is a good thing. And when we walk in his steps and when we follow him, and especially as men as the head of households, and we command, it's good for everyone. It's good for the husband father. It's good for the wife and children. It's good for society at large. That's the way that God designed it. So commands, good commands, and authority exercised rightly are good and necessary 
and something that God requires. And so we see Jacob here finally at the end of his life fully, it's it, just the atmosphere of the text is that he's fully embracing now his God-given role as the head of his household, as the patriarch. The only other instances that it might be said he commanded were in Genesis 35. And we've emphasized that text a lot because it seems to be a turning point where he says, he says to his family, it doesn't use the word command, but he does turn to his family and it, it says that he says to them, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves. Let us arise and go to Bethel. So that is the beginning of him really learning to embrace this. And then he does something similar in chapter 47 with Joseph. In verse 29, he makes Joseph, and we'll cover this a little more in depth, but he makes him to promise and to swear that he will bury him, not in Egypt, but in Canaan. So that's in addition to him commanding his sons here to do the same thing. So we're going to look at three things. The substance of the command, the significance of the command, and the satisfying of the command. So what's the substance of the command? He says, first, I'm to be gathered to my people. He's going to join the cloud of witnesses. He's going to lie and die. Others who went before him going to be laid to rest. And the command that he gives is, bury me with my fathers. Where? Where does he say? It's a very specific place. Not just bury me in the land of Canaan in general. Not, not just a disregard. Well, I don't care what happens to my body after I die. It doesn't matter. I'll be dead. No, no. He has a very specific place in mind in the land of Canaan. And not just a specific town, not just a specific plot of land, but a specific place. It's a cave. It's in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan. Now, if you remember from Genesis 18, Mamre is where the Lord appeared to Abraham in the theophany with those three men. And the Lord Jesus was one of them. says, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And this is when he promises to him a son. In one year, I'll return and you'll have a son. So he promises that. And listen to this. This, this is so interesting that it says this in verse 19 of that chapter. I'll start at verse 16. It says, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them. So that's the three, the three men. And set to, Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had promised him. Now, I think that's interesting that it mentions Mamre in this passage. And if you go back and look at Mamre there, the Lord tells Abraham to command his family. Interesting correlation there. So that's the where. What is it? What is this place? It was purchased by Abraham from Ephron the Hittite to possess. Now, Ephron, tried, they tried to give Abraham the land and say, here, you just take it. No, 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 no. 
there was prudence there on Abraham's part. He says, I'm going to buy it. There, there's not going to be any question about this later that you gave it to me and you're taking it back. It's not mine anymore. So Ephron names the price. Abraham buys it, and that's his possession. He possesses it. It's an interesting thing to note as well that the first thing that Abraham possessed from the land of promise was a grave, a burying place. That's where everything begins, at the cross for us, the place of death. So who is buried there? It says Abraham and Sarah were buried there, Isaac and Rebekah were buried there, and Leah, Jacob's first wife, were buried there. If you remember, Rachel was buried on the way to, to Bethlehem Ephrathah when she died giving birth to Benjamin. So that's the substance of the command. And what is the significance of the command? Why is he so adamant? Why does he care what happens to his body after he dies? Who cares? Why does it matter? He's going to be dead. Especially given the fact that there were a lot of times in the past when Jacob just didn't really seem to care at all about a number of things. So why does it matter? Well, if we look back through Jacob's encounters with God, there are four. There's a dream in Genesis 28. There's a wrestling in Genesis 32. There's an appearance in Genesis 35. And there's a vision in Genesis 46. Those are direct from the text. Those are the descriptions that it uses of when the Lord, when he saw the Lord or heard from the Lord. Now, in three of the four of those, the land of promise is mentioned. And we're going to look at them by way of review. In chapter 28, verses 10 through 15, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. In chapter 35, in verse 9, it says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then in 46, chapter 46, it says, verse 1, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. 
This was because of the famine. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now that one is specifically, the other two were just the land in general. I'll bring you back here. This one was specific to Egypt. So you go down to Egypt, and I'll bring you back to the land. Now, the he was in Egypt at the end of this chapter that we just read in 49 and 50. He's in Egypt, so he still has this in mind. God said he would bring me back up out of this land. So the significance of this command, we're going to look at three ways in which this is significant. There's an earthly promise. There's a heavenly picture. And there's a spiritual possession. The earthly promise, first, is Canaan below. That's first promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The Abrahamic covenant. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham, Abram was seven, I've been saying Abraham. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So this, this is a significant part, one of the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant. The other was blessing and the other was seed or offspring. But the land is a significant part of the Abrahamic covenant and then it gets passed down to Isaac and then it gets passed down to Jacob and we see it reiterated in those three passages in Genesis that we just reviewed. The land is one of the fixtures and the most, one of the most important Old Testament themes. It's one of the fixtures of the Old Covenant and one of the most important Old Testament themes. It's mentioned 98 times in the book of Joshua alone. In the book of Joshua, if you're familiar with it, is when they go in to possess the land. They cross over the Jordan out of the wilderness of sin, and they go in to possess the land. 98 times it talks about the land. So it's important. Canaan below. Now, at this point in Jacob's life, the only possession that they had, the only fulfillment that he'd seen of the promise was that they had that field at Machpelah, the cave at Machpelah purchased by Abraham. Nevertheless, he holds fast to the promise. He holds fast to it. What does it say in Hebrews 11.1? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the conviction of things not seen. So he holds fast to it. And we get a lot more insight in that 11th chapter of Hebrews as to what is going on in the minds and hearts of these men. And Jacob in particular as they're sojourning, as they're waiting on the promise. It says in verse 
13, the beginning, chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 13, the beginning of that verse is speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So convinced was he that on his deathbed, this was his concern. He was convinced of this promise. And so his concern is that he would honor the Lord as his last act. And that his sons should see it as a further token to encourage their own faith in the promises of God. Now this is a different kind of passion than we've seen from Jacob. Ever in his life. He's been passionate about things. He's been concerned about things, but they've mostly been either carnal things or natural things. He was concerned at first for the birthright. Then he was concerned with the blessing. He was concerned with Rachel. He loved her. I'm not saying these are bad things. He was concerned with his possessions, with Laban. He wanted to protect his possessions. That was all well and good. He was concerned with his life for fear of his brother Esau. He was concerned again with the blessing when he wrestles with God. That was the fourth encounter that we didn't read. And then he was concerned again with his life when, after the slaughter at Shechem, and he tells Levi and Simeon, you've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. They're going to come, and they're going to kill me. And then later in his life, he's concerned with Joseph. He's distraught over Joseph when he thinks that Joseph has died, and he's concerned at the last over Benjamin because he thinks he's going to lose Benjamin in that whole episode when his brothers go down to Egypt, and Joseph tells him that he wants them to bring back Benjamin, and, he's, and Jacob's so deeply concerned, I'm going to go, I'm going to go down to Sheol in tears with gray hair, and I'll be bereaved of my son, my beloved son. So he's concerned for things, but all of those things are carnal things or they're natural things. Now he's concerned with the Lord and with his promise. This is the first true spiritual concern that Jacob's shown, at least in this depth. It's a zeal of faith. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. He would have derived no personal benefit from this act. Because he would be dead. And he's soon to be dead. It's a truly selfless and God-honoring act of faith. Now recall that he makes Joseph swear and subsequently commands his sons. So two different times he speaks to Joseph privately. He says, promise me you'll deal kindly with me and, and bury me here. Not here, but in the land of Canaan. And he says, yes, I will. He says, swear to me. Swear to me. He's adamant about this. And then again, when all his sons are together, he said, this is the command that he is fixated on. This you must do because I wish to honor the Lord my God. A question for us. How often do I do something that is for the honor and glory of God from which I will derive no tangible benefit? So, that was the earthly promise, the Canaan below. And there's the heavenly picture, the second significance, Canaan above. 
Hebrews. We'll go back to Hebrews 11 here. It sheds additional light on this, beginning in verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful with promise. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. <clears throat> and we read this already. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Prepared for them a city. So it wasn't just the hope of Canaan below, but it was the confidence of Canaan above that was driving Jacob. Now, we don't see that in Genesis. You don't see that. But evidently, that was what was in their heart and mind, as we see from the writer of Hebrews here. It says of Abraham that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then of the three of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it says that they didn't receive the promises, but they saw them and greeted them from afar. And they confessed that they were strangers and exiles. Why, is the question. And the verse 14 answers. Because people who speak this way make it clear that they're seeking a homeland, a heavenly one, a better country. So this, this was what enabled and motivated them and Jacob, in particular, to live steadfastly in faith before God while they were on the earth because they had a vision of that heavenly Canaan above. Well, what's so great about the heavenly Canaan? I asked my children this week at the dinner table, I said, do you want to go to heaven? And... Then I said to the ones who said yes, some are really young, and one of them said, no, I want to go to hell. I said, we've got some work to do. <laughs> uh, but I asked them, I said, why do you want to go to heaven? It's a simple question, but I don't think we think about it frequently. We just, it's a given. Yeah, of course I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go there. But we don't really think carefully or perhaps have it ingrained deeply in our hearts as to why we desire a better country. Why do we desire that city? Let's go back to the Revelation passage that we read earlier. And I want to read it for you again because it's so insightful 
and important. I'm going to start in chapter 21, verse 9. It says, then came one of the seven angels. So this is all describing the heavenly Jerusalem, which is the capital of the heavenly Canaan. It's the capital city. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's 1,380 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. There was first jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelve amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed to me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Do you see it? Three key words that are repeated over and over in the book of Revelation are worship, 24 times, the lamb, 30 times, and throne, 47 times. 
So the theme of the book of Revelation, you might read it and, try and not understand. There's so much symbolism, so much imagery, and many confusing things. You could get really caught up in eschatology and the end times, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and a lot of people do. And if you do that, you miss the point of the book because the point of the book is worship the Lamb on the throne. That is... That's the theme of the whole Bible. Worship the Lamb on the throne, but particularly of the book of Revelation. So it's not just the beauty of the city. Did you see all of, it, describing all the different crystals and all the different fixtures and everything, the streets and the walls and the gates and everything that would be in there? There's description given to those things. Those are not what make it heaven. And it's neither the fact that there will be the absence of tears, death, crying, pain, or even sin. There won't be any sin there. But none of these things are the defining mark of the heavenly Canaan. It's not the absence of something. It's the presence of someone. The great fixture of heaven for all of eternity will be the Lamb of God sitting on his royal throne in all his glorious majesty. That's what makes heaven, heaven. And that's why we ought to long to be there. As Peter says, having not seen him, we love him. And though we don't see him now, we rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. That was the heartbeat of those men who live by faith. They were seeking the better country. And they had interacted with its builder and maker, each one of them. Now, there's a wrong way to live on earth while hoping and waiting for heavenly Canaan. There's a right way and there's a wrong way. Or there are probably many wrong ways, but here are just a few one idea is that just get, get saved, keep my head down, stay out of trouble, wait for the Lord to come take me home. Or I just want to get saved, and then I can live however I want. I pay little attention to the deeds done in the body, and I just wait to be taken home. I just have yellow. You only live once. Or... Probably the most prominent, especially among, among well-meaning and right-hearted even, to a certain extent right-hearted, believers. This is the most common one. I just, I'm going to get saved, but I'm consigning myself to perpetual moral failure. Because I'm, I'm a sinner. That's just, I'm a sinner. And so, and I thank God for his forgiveness and someday he's going to come and he's, he's really going to, I'm going to get to heaven and then I'll have victory. Then I'll have victory over sin. And that's the key element of that, that perspective, that belief that besets so many of us is thinking that victory will come later. Once I get to heaven. Now, it's true, there will be a final and full glorification in which we'll be purged from all sin completely. But... But the problem with thinking that I just can't 
have victory now. I'll just, oh, I just when I get to heaven, then I'll be able to stop this sin, this besetting sin. I'll be able to really walk uprightly. The problem with that is that there are so many verses in the Bible about living victoriously as a Christian, being a conqueror. It even said it in the passage that we just read in chapter 21, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will give this inheritance. There are also many verses in the Bible about the importance of the deeds done in the body. Verses about rewards for earthly deeds. Verses about the fact that the Lord has prepared good deeds for us to walk in. And he intends for us to walk in those. But the most of all is it makes a mockery of the gospel and the cross. Jesus came, he said, so that we may have life and have it more abundantly. Not so that we could struggle perpetually. So that's the wrong way. That's the wrong way. It's just, well, there's not really anything I can do now. You know, I'm just, I'm just trying to make it. That's not a life of faith. Looking to heavenly Canaan and saying, well, I just can't wait till I get there. But now, you know, I'm just, kind of, I'm just you know, I told somebody earlier, I said, I, there's a, a person I used to work with. And I'd always, but that's the perspective of many Christians, many of us even, maybe some of you. Well, I'm vertical. You know, I'm, I'm alive today. That's not the life that Jesus died to give you. So you can look to heaven and you can say, oh, I can't wait to get there. But, it, but in a way that doesn't endue you with any kind of power to live by faith victoriously while you're still here on the earth. That's not what we're after. That's the wrong way. There's a right way. That's what Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham did. It's what all the saints in Hebrews 11 did. It's what the apostles and the prophets did. They strove with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength to love the Lord their God by walking in the obedience of faith, knowing they would see him one day face to face in the Canaan above. That knowledge of him, that I'll see him, and that cultivated intimacy with him. Having not seen him, we love him. And though we don't see him now, we rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory. The knowledge of our everlasting inheritance should engender the most vigorous and faithful labor for the Lord while we remain here on earth. It's what enables us to live in total abandon to the will of God and a steadfast hope in his promises, even if, like Jacob, we don't receive them in full, but we greet them from far off. So, <clears throat> that was the earthly promise, the Canaan below, the heavenly promise, the heavenly picture, the Canaan above, and then now there remains still a spiritual possession, Canaan within. Canaan within. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means victorious Christian living here and now. When I say victorious, I mean victorious over sin. Living as more than a conqueror because that's who he's made us to be. 
the whole Old Testament story of the Exodus, wandering in the wilderness, and then possessing the promised land is a figure. It's a picture. The Exodus, they, were, they, they had heavy burdens, taskmasters. That's being enslaved to sin. They were slaves. That's a picture of being enslaved to sin for the, before becoming a Christian. Then there's being brought out victoriously. The Lord does mighty wonders to bring them out from bondage. That's what the Lord did at the cross. Mighty wonders to bring us out from under bondage and freedom from slavery. But then into the wilderness. Not yet into the fullness of the land of promise, but in the wilderness. There's still unbelief there. It's a dry and weary land. There's not yet the land flowing with milk and honey and the land of abundance and the land of victory and the land of rest. That's the picture of having not yet fully learned to walk in victory and by faith, enjoying the Lord, believing Him, yielding to Him. And then there's the possessing of the promised land where they went in and they fought, they fought their enemies. They, they devoted to destruction all the people of the land. They drove out the inhabitants of the land. This is the picture of driving out our personal besetting sins. We spare them not. Mercilessly, we slaughter them. We put them to death. And as we do, it's a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And it's a, a land of rest, it talks about in Hebrews. It's a place of rest. It's that place where though we aren't fully and completely freed from the burden and the bondage of sin, we experience a great measure of victory in walking by faith with the Lord, enjoying him day by day. His intimacy, his, pre, his intimacy with him and his presence. How is it possible? How is it possible? It's possible by the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, the, the, the fixture of the old covenant was the land. Over and over and over, the land, the land, the land, that physical land that the Lord promised and that he gave them. And when the Lord disciplined them, he drove them out of the land. He let their enemies come and attack their land and break down the walls. And then they went and took them eventually in, in exile to Babylon. And so it's all the land there, okay? But... The fixture of the new covenant is the Spirit of God dwelling within. And the Lord does discipline you when you're not obedient. You willfully sin by removing his Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about removing completely, but removing the conscious awareness of his presence. He does that. Because he, he doesn't have fellowship with darkness. And so if we sin willfully, then there's no... He's not going to do it. You see, formerly, it was a dwelling for them, the land. Now, it's a dwelling for him in me. Formerly, it was a place. Now, it's a person. Formerly, it was milk and honey. Now, rivers of living water. Formerly, it was victory over external enemies. Now, it's victory over internal ones. This new covenant is better in every way. I encourage you to go read. We don't have time to do it now. John 14 through 16. 
one of the things you'll notice when the Lord is making covenants is that he issues these statements of I will, I will, I will, I will. If you look at his promises of the new covenant all throughout the Old Testament, it's I will, I will, I will, I will. And every covenant, even the one with Abraham that we read, I will, I will, I will. I will do this. Well, in John 14 through 16, Jesus says over and over, I will, I will, I will, I will. And almost everything that he says when he says I will is concerning the Holy Spirit. It's concerning him sending. He says, my father and I, we will come and make our home in you. He has been with you, but he will be in you. And so it's the indwelling spirit that he's promising once he ascends on high and, and he fulfill the, the fullness of the covenant, I will send the Spirit and he will teach you all things. He'll be your comforter. He will be your strengthener. He will testify of me. So we have a much greater blessing and ability to walk in victory here and now on the earth than even they did because we have the Spirit of God living on the inside, His temple there. Some people say, I've heard arguments say, well, Canaan in the Old Testament represents heaven. And other people say, no, it represents the victorious life on earth. But I say it represents both, which is what we just covered. Because if God establishes an outpost in my heart, then I should expect for my life to significantly reflect the atmosphere of the Canaan above. So, those were... The significance of Jacob's command, the earthly promise, Canaan above, the heavenly picture, I'm sorry, the earthly promise, Canaan below, the heavenly picture, Canaan above, and the spiritual possession, Canaan within. And now we come to the satisfying of the command. So there was the substance of the command, the significance of the command, and now the satisfying of the command. Jacob lived by faith and died in faith. So as he dies, and we get a glimpse into this funeral procession that we read, again, I return to the, the question, what, what is the significance? Why, why is there so much ink spilt? I mean, we just covered why there was ink spilt at the end of chapter 49, but why is there so much ink spilt in chapter 50 regarding the funeral procession? Why do we care what happened specifically, all the Egyptians, all this stuff? What does that matter? For one thing, it's a foreshadowing of the true exodus from Egypt that was to come later when the Lord would bring them out after 400 years of bondage. And note the similarities between this and that. In both cases, there was a request made to Pharaoh. In both cases, there was leave granted by Pharaoh. In both cases, a great company followed them. In both cases, 
there went up with him chariots and horsemen. And in both cases, they were traveling from Egypt to Canaan. Now, it's not an exact one-to-one. There are some differences between this and that, but it's intended to be a picture. The Lord loves doing that. Once you understand that, then you see in the scriptures, the Lord, he, he plays out scenarios over and over and over and over, but in different ways because he, he loves to be reminded supremely of his dear son. And all of these different scenarios point to him ultimately and, and his work. But he loves to be reminded of, of the truth and certain things that he's done, of his covenants and his promises and various things. And so he plays out the same thing in different scenarios like this. And we have that here. So it's a foreshadowing of the, the exodus to come. And then we see some interesting peculiarities in this funeral procession by the Egyptians such a big to-do about it. It says they embalmed him. They mourned for him 70 days. It was all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of Pharaoh's household, the elders of the land of Egypt. They all went. This wasn't a short journey. Chariots and horsemen, there was a very great company. They lamented, this is the, the Egyptians, They lamented with a very great and grievous lamentation. Now, this is significant because they weren't their kinsmen, according to the flesh. These Egyptians were were foreigners. But they lament with a very great and grievous lamentation, so much so that the Canaanites in the land notice it, and they say, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. And they named the place according to that. Now, Very little is said about Abraham or Isaac's burial in Genesis 25 and Genesis 35, respectively. You can go look at those. It's basically just one verse that they they were gathered together with their fathers. And even the same thing is true of the kings of Israel. It typically will say of them, they were buried with their fathers in the city of David. That's it. One line or maybe a verse, a a few lines. So why is there such a big deal made out of Jacob's death here. Well, the practical reason is because of Joseph. Because Joseph was essentially in charge of the land of Egypt. He was directly under Pharaoh, and Pharaoh put him in in charge of everything. And so they were showing honor to Joseph by honoring his father. And they had love and respect for Joseph, and so they're honoring his father. So that's the practical reason, but... But there's some principles here. It says in Proverbs 11.25 that whoever brings blessing will be enriched and one who waters will himself be watered. So if you look earlier, it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And we see that Jacob blessed Joseph and his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And so the Lord's rewarding him according to this. He's being watered because he watered. He's being enriched because he blessed. And another principle is that God humbles those who exalt themselves, and he exalts those who humble themselves. Or as James puts it, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and at the proper time, he will exalt you. And evidently, God saw that this was the proper time for Jacob, even after his death. 
Jacob humbled himself by blessing Ephraim and Manasseh by faith. He blessed his sons by faith, and he commanded his burial by faith. You say, well, well how's that humbling himself? To because he humbled himself before God, even if he didn't understand why or why it was so important. He was obedient. He was walking by faith towards God. That's what it means to be humble. I submit myself and subject myself completely to the Lord and to his will. And so he does that. And the Lord exalts him here. He's held in high honor and high esteem. And then the last thing about that is that it seems to be a picture. It's interesting that Abraham and Isaac don't get very much said about their burial, but that Jacob does. Well, Jacob was renamed Israel. And he was the one from whom the whole nation would spring. His 12 sons were the 12 tribes. And so this was representative of how highly God would honor the nation who would come from his loins. The honor that God would bestow upon Israel throughout their history, hundreds and hundreds of years. So Jacob's body was buried and his spirit entered into that heavenly Canaan. And by way of closing, I would just read two passages for us to exhort us to live faithfully as we look to that better country. It says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which, which righteousness dwells. And so the thrust of the text is not, well, it's all going to be burned, so who cares what I do? Who cares what happens here? No, no. The thrust is that everything that I've done will be exposed and that I have a heavenly city to look forward to so I can live in total abandon to the Lord Jesus and his indwelling spirit here and now because this is temporary and because I know I have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, fading not away. And then in 1 Peter, we visited this 1 Peter chapter 1 for several weeks now. I'm going to read Again, I think David read a few weeks ago. Verse 13, it says, it's after that passage that I was quoting a couple of times earlier, having not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, you rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So then it says after that in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action, girding up the loins of your mind, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, 
You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not by perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of man is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Let's pray. Father, so many riches to be seen, to meditate on, to take deeply into our hearts, to drink freely of the river of the water of life as we consider the glory of the promises that you've made to us. As we look on and see your grace, your mercy, your faithfulness towards Jacob, towards Isaac, towards Abraham, towards all the saints of old. And as we see how that grace that you showed to Jacob strengthened and enabled him to be faithful, to be obedient, to live by faith and to die in faith. Make us men and women of like sort. Open our eyes to see more clearly that heavenly Canaan and to take possession of it now by giving you possession of our hearts and yielding to you joyfully, receiving, obeying your commands, cultivating that intimacy with you. Strengthen us, pour out your spirit on us. Make us faithful men and women of God and convict us now for the ways that we haven't. If any person is kicking against the goads, if any person's in willful sin, if any person hasn't yielded to you as their king, then convict them now. You said that when the Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. I pray that you do that now. And for the rest of us, that you stir up our hearts to worship you with a pure heart and sincerity of faith as we sing and as we go from here. In Jesus' name. Amen.